0: How would it feel to be a bookish kid, one who doesn't think they belong, and have someone come in and tell you you're special, that you have hidden talents that aren't being recognized, that you're gifted? That happens to a lot of kids. One minute, you're in so-called regular classes, and the next, you're given a test and placed in special classes for the gifted and talented. Often these classes have more engaging material and better student-teacher ratios. And what does it feel like to be the kid who's not selected? Either way, it turns out to be a big moment for a lot of kids. And it's one that happens at age 7 or 8. So where did the idea for these gifted programs come from? And how do we decide who gets to be part of them? It turns out the notion of gifted education can be traced back more than a century to a quirky kid who was born in 1877 in a farm town in Indiana. His name was Lewis Terman. These days, not many people have heard his name, but he was at one time a celebrity, about as famous as any psychology professor could get anyway. That's because Lewis Terman pretty much invented the modern IQ test, and he devoted much of his career to what he saw as a major problem in education, that super smart kids were bored Or overlooked. He felt there was this untapped natural resource, maybe more valuable than literal diamonds. You know, diamonds in the rough. Terman wanted to change the way people thought about smart kids. Because back in the day, precocious children were seen as more of a problem than an asset. People saw them as more likely to be antisocial, they were misfits.
1: You know, there was this idea of the crazed genius, you know, the struggling genius. That's Jarrett Hodges, an associate professor at the University of North Texas. And Lewis Terman was like, no, hold on a second. Let's actually
0: see what high IQ individuals look like. Terman's hypothesis was that smart kids weren't broken. They were just misunderstood. And he believed this untapped resource of genius kids was a key to a better society. I can't help but think of that ridiculous 1980s movie, Revenge of the Nerds, When I think about what Terman was going for, for for he set out to study these gifted children, as he called them. He selected more than 1,400 kids from various parts of California and dug into their lives. He measured and weighed and recorded nearly everything about them he could think of where their grandparents had been born, what health problems their parents suffered from the size of these children's cranial capacity, and the grip strength of both their left and right hands. He asked them what subjects they preferred in school, what collections they kept, like stamps or plants, and what games they liked to play. By the way, gifted boys, he found, showed a greater preference for hiking, dancing, swimming, croquet, dominoes, and Parcheesi than the control group. But they had less interest in basketball, walking on stilts, flying kites, and playing farmer in the dell. He didn't stop at that first study, though. He checked in every few years to see how their lives developed. That research is known as the Terman Study of the Gifted, and it was a revolutionary approach to social science research. No one had done a serious longitudinal study of this type in psychology, ever. And after Terman's death, researchers continued to track these gifted folks, who became known endearingly as termites. Research on this rich data set is still going, actually. And it's the longest-running longitudinal study of all time. This year, it turns out, is the 100th anniversary of the start of that study of gifted children. Which seems like a natural time to ask, how did Terman's ideas about intelligence shape education? That question led us to some dark truths about Terman. And to a debate going on right now about his legacy. And about the future of gifted education. Welcome to Bootstraps, a podcast series about merit, myth, and education. This is the third of a six episode series we're producing with our friends at the journalism nonprofit Open Campus. We're unpacking popular narratives about who gets what opportunities in America and wondering how it could all be different. Last episode, we went to the best high school in the country to understand a debate there about who should get in. And one thing that we kept hearing that was to really understand the issue of equity in U.S. education, you need to go back much earlier than high school, all the way to second grade. That's when most public schools start testing kids for gifted and talented programs. And that's when we started hearing Lewis Terman's name. He's known as the father of gifted education. So who was Terman? He grew up on a farm where, as a kid, he worked long days helping to plow the fields, and he worried he'd be stuck in that grind forever. He looked forward to his one-hour lunch break, which was the only time he could devote to what he called mental development. My plans
2: to escape from the farm are motivated entirely by my desire to get an education. For the farmer boy of 1890 in Indiana to get an education meant, first of all, that one must prepare to teach school. That step accomplished, it was possible to earn one's way through college and to enter a profession.
0: That's from Terman's autobiography. We had an actor help bring him to life for this episode. Not to teach
2: meant to continue forever plowing the same fields, doing the same chores, and getting nowhere.
0: A defining moment in Terman's life came when he was about nine or ten years old, by chance. A traveling salesman knocked on the door of their farmhouse. This one was selling a book on phrenology. Phrenology is the now very debunked idea that you can measure a person's intelligence by actually measuring their heads. And apparently looking for bumps? That evening, while we
2: sat about the fireplace, the stranger discoursed on the science of phrenology and felt the bumps of each one in the family. Perhaps I remember the incident so well for the reason that when it came to my turn to be examined, he predicted great things of me. I think the prediction probably added a little to my self-confidence and caused me to strive for a more ambitious goal than I might have otherwise set. At any rate, I was greatly impressed, and for several years thereafter was much interested in phrenology. As my older brother bought a copy of the book, I finally became familiar with its contents and believed in phrenology until I was fourteen or fifteen years old. This was my introduction to the science of individual
0: differences— Terman did give up on phrenology, and he got off the farm, studying to be a teacher. But he stayed interested in this idea of
2: measuring intelligence. I wanted to find out what types of mental processes are involved in the thing we are accustomed to calling intelligence. I therefore selected two groups of subjects of nearly the same age, a bright group and a dull group, and I proceeded to look for tests It could bring out the differences in their performances.
0: He wasn't the only one experimenting with building tests of mental ability. Another test, getting some attention at the time, was developed by a French psychologist, Alfred Binet. This Binet-Simon test was commissioned by the French Ministry of Education to see which students were not learning and might need remedial classes. But Binet warned about the limitations of the test he built. And he stressed that human intelligence was way too complicated and varied to be boiled down to a single number. He thought intelligence really depended on social context and environment as well. Terman saw things differently. In 1916, he published an adaptation of Binet's test that was far more standardized and easier to administer. And Terman came up with a scale from idiocy to feeble-mindedness to genius And he said intelligence, it could be measured easily with this test. He dubbed this test the Stanford-Binet test. But plenty of people at the time were dubious, just like Binet.
3: The idea that you could measure intelligence was an incredibly new idea in the early 20th century. Um, And not altogether, not one that was accepted even by psychologists. And many psychologists were uh, skeptical that it could even be done.
0: That's Nathan Sleater a history professor at George Mason University who specializes in the cultural history of gifted children.
3: It was something that that met with a lot of skepticism, and it was something that had to be uh, kind of promoted and supported.
0: Terman made his case, and as he did so, he was part of a trend that forever changed the field of psychology. Suddenly, instead of fuzzy research, there were these new tools that promised to answer questions about people's brains that had never before seemed possible.
3: Psychology in the 19th century is more of a philosophy type, uh, type discipline. It's less objective seeming. It's less scientific. So with the, but with the, the development of these, you know, seemingly objective tests, it becomes, you know, far more at least objective seeming. And the idea that you can find things that are, um, you know, you can, you can identify individuals using this objective technology uh, really becomes a way for psychologists to promote the discipline and to promote their own usefulness. And, um, you know, Terman is, is right in the center of all that.
0: So Terman used his new IQ test to identify kids for his unusual study. Like that traveling salesman who came to measure his head, Lewis Terman was tapping people and telling them they had special potential. But there were a lot of problems with his approach. He no longer believed in phrenology, but he did believe strongly in genetic superiority. In fact, he originally called his study the genetic study of genius. And he often skipped low-income schools when he gave out tests, out of the belief that he just wouldn't find gifted students there. To most scholars today, Even those who think Terman made important contributions, his views are just racist. He believed that intelligence was a matter of heredity and that certain races would be shown to have lower intelligences than others. That the major differences
2: between children of high and low IQ and the major differences in the intelligence test scores of certain races, as Negroes and whites, will never be fully accounted for on the environmental hypothesis. And it gets worse.
0: He believed his tests could be used to promote racial purity. He was a eugenicist. He was even an active member of groups like the Eugenic Society that actively proposed sterilizing disabled people and ethnic groups they considered undesirable. But he was also complicated. Some of his views were more progressive than his contemporaries. For instance, he felt girls were being unfairly treated by social norms.
1: Terman noted throughout his studies that society was holding back the girls within his study. He said that it's unfair, he would note that it's unfair, and that if these, you know, young women might have been born in a different society, their academic outcomes and their career outcomes would be very different. So Lewis Terman saw that these very gifted girls, who are just as gifted as boys, a portion of them might have ended up as, you know, um, housewives. And Lewis Terman saw that as a... um, Something wrong with American society, that that's what happened, that someone who's just as gifted as someone else, this other person goes and becomes a professor and this other person becomes a domestic, you know, a domestic um, stay-at-home spouse. And the difference of them is not anything to do with their academic ability, but it's something
0: to do with their gender. And Terman saw that as a big failing in society. But Terman's blind spots affected other areas of his work. His goal was to identify children as gifted and follow them into adulthood to show how successful they could be. But he didn't merely observe them. He took a personal interest in his subjects, checking in on their marriages and their children. He wrote letters of recommendation. He helped them get into grad school. This was the furthest thing from a double-blind study. Terman's story and his research highlight a core contradiction at the heart of this podcast series. On one hand, he believed he could create an objective test that could determine who is smarter than others, boosting the notion that some people have more merit than others. Those diamonds in the rough who can rise out of the rough if only they're identified. And that fits well with the American myth that we explored on episode one about people being able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps no matter their environmental circumstances the self-made man epitomized in Horatio Alger stories from the 1800s. At the same time, Terman believed that once children were identified as gifted, they should be given special programs and opportunities. In other words, he thought that society, through special programs in public schools, should do more to educate these children than others. Not exactly pulling yourself up. It turns out that nudge, that tap on the shoulder and then a hand up, is actually core to Horatio Alger stories too. Nathan Sleader, that history professor at George Mason, said he had an advisor in grad school who pointed out this consistent feature of Alger's stories.
3: And it really is. If you if you go through those stories, they they're very formulaic. Uh, they follow a very very similar pattern, and it's often about this uh, this young man who grows up poor, unschooled, uh, in the streets often, and is identified at some point by some sort of benefactor as having potential, and the, the moment of identification is often very similar. It's like the the benefactor just knows that this child is different, that this child is special, that this child you know can be more than their station, and they take this child under their wing. They give them a job. The child does work hard, but the child also uh, achieves. At this pretty extraordinary pace in almost every book, uh, they, they go from illiterate to, you know, as you know, keeping up with their schoolmates within six months. I mean, this is really it's incredible how uh, exceptional uh, Alger wants to make each one of these, these subjects. Right. Um, and I, th- I just thought, you know, I was, I was reading this, and I thought, these are gifted children. <laughs> they're not calling them gifted children in the, the book. The, the term hadn't even been invented when Alger was writing. Uh, but it's, it's the, the faith that they're out there, sort of like finding these diamonds in the rough, uh, that, oh, yes, there, there are so many poor uh, children out there. And many of them probably can't be helped. But we know we know there are some that we can, if we can just identify them, we know they're there. We just need the right tool, Right. And when the, the intelligence test comes along, uh, it, it seems to me that Terman's point is, well, we can do this. We can, we now have a technology to uncover those diamonds in the rough, to find those, uh, those exceptional individuals among kind of the mass of, uh, you know, seemingly unexceptional people and we can promote them up. And, you know, there was a lot of the connection for me that made sense to was Terman's own biography. The fact that he grew up as one of these possibly anonymous, you know, rural folks in, in Indiana, and he achieved, uh, PhD in psychology, became a nationally known figure. So he very much sympathizes with this idea. (laughs) There are uh, some individuals out there who are exceptional if just given the right chance, if just given, you know, an opportunity, if they're promoted, then they too can be uh, uh, exceptional.
0: Terman casts himself as a kind of character from Horatio Alger. And he worked to build a system designed to make sure these diamonds in the rough are revealed. So what did Terman conclude from his long-term study of gifted children? In a speech Terman gave late in his life, after the study had been going on for more than 30 years, he said he felt the research did answer the question of whether or not gifted children tend to be misfits.
2: To what extent do our findings support the beliefs, current a half-century ago, that intellectually precocious children are especially likely to be queer, one-sided, Sickly, neurotic, or otherwise poor bets for the future. The answer is almost no support at all.
0: Most in his study were social and well-adjusted, he said. And they did better than average in school. But none of them won the Nobel Prize or dreamed up the next world-changing invention. And some of them were just kind of mediocre middle-class folks. And he sort of struggled to explain away this lack of heroism.
2: We know of several in the group who deliberately chose not to enter the usual American rat race for material success, nor can I find it in my heart to criticize those who made this choice. It may well be that there are fewer honors and lower incomes that have been fully compensated by greater contentment and a lower incident of anxiety and ulcers.
0: Terman clearly shaped this popular narrative that's still out there. That we need IQ tests to find diamonds in the rough for the good of the country. Those ideas would again rise to prominence in other key moments in American history.
1: A lot of this is based on the idea of, of, you know, a fear of wasting talent that was particularly acute at the height
0: of the Cold War. That's Nicholas Lemon, a professor at Columbia University and author of The Big Test, a history of the SAT. In other words,
1: one thing that differentiates the United States from the rest of the developed world is the extremely decentralized uh, education system. People like Terman were really preoccupied with the idea that there could be extraordinarily talented people who the system just missed. And so that end up, you know, in, if you will, behind a mule and a plow, mm-hmm. instead of making great scientific inventions and things like that.
0: Gifted and talented programs do have their critics. Even within the field, there's a big debate about how they're run and about who ends up getting those taps on the shoulder, signaling you might be special. Concerns about equity in gifted ed are laid out in a blunt research report that was published in 2019 called System Failure, Access Denied. The lead author was Marcia Gentry a Purdue University professor who leads the Gifted Education Research and Resource Institute.
4: We have an identification gap. We don't give opportunities to be served in gifted programs to black and brown children and to children in lower-income neighborhoods. The researchers looked at
0: schools across the country and at which students get tested for these gifted programs. Often it takes a teacher recommending whether a child should be tested. And they found glaring disparities when it comes to race and class.
4: For example, for every one black child identified, three are missing. I mean, that that's gut-wrenching. And by missing, the researchers mean that no one even thought to look for them. What happens to the kids with potential? The stakes are super high. You know, they start out, they come to school, they're super smart, they're, you know, ready to go. And then we say, well, and, you know, if you think about like a, a low-income student's standardized score, parents who have Uh, limited means. are not bad parents, but maybe they're not home as often. They don't live in neighborhoods with libraries. You know, they're struggling to make ends meet, so the kids may start out behind. And if we don't enrich them and help them come forward, by about fifth or sixth grade, they look average. You know, we've lost it.
0: There's a growing sense that gifted programs have been used as a means of segregation.
4: I, I don't think it's an accident that gifted education is inequitable. I think in some regards, there are people using public or charter or religious schools as means of segregation. We don't want our kids with those kids. And as long as we keep the IQ or the ability test entrance, those kids don't get in and we're happy. And you'll see this. I mean, when I lived in Minnesota, there were urban schools where there was a gifted school within a school. And the gifted school would be all white and Asian and the school around it would be all brown faces you know, and they're, they're, what they're doing is they're bringing families into urban areas, you know, and they're using gifted education as a means of, quote, integration. But because it's a school within a school, that's not really happening. And so I don't think we can continue to justify walking down the hall and seeing the gifted program with a bunch of white faces and not giving opportunity. It, it sends a really bad message to the other kids that you're, you're not as worthwhile. This, by the way, was actually Terman's central fear
0: that society wasn't looking hard enough for genius kids and that they were missing these diamonds in the rough. But like a drunk who looks for his keys near the lamppost because that's where the light is, Terman was really only looking within the cultural context that he knew. And he didn't bother searching elsewhere out of what seems like a mix of junk science and sheer prejudice. So one proposed solution is to make that identification more equitable. And that can start with just creating multiple ways for students to be identified. In New Mexico, advocates have been developing legislation to do just that, according to Ann Gray, an education assessment specialist at New Mexico Tech. She also worked on that report about equity in gifted ed.
5: People within the field are finding the language that's needed, finding the practical side of how we're going to do this. Um, Finding the pathways to equity.
0: But just as it looked like the policy was going to move forward, it stalled out.
5: And then it dies in committee.
0: Popular narratives about education in the U.S. were a key part of that, says Gray. During the Cold War, you know, there was this national push to make sure the nation had the talented engineers and scientists needed to stay ahead. But now...
5: We're not back to the 1950s post-Sputnik push for gifted education to develop the talent, the you know gifted and talents we have in our students here. It's it's just we don't have that push part. We have the racial equity part, but if there is no focus on gifted education, nobody's focused on making those changes
0: one wrinkle in the battle to make gifted education more equitable, sometimes it leads people to call for the whole approach to be scrapped entirely. Their logic? If no one's identified as gifted and we don't have separate programs, then there's no racism. That's one worry of Marcia Gentry, the lead author of that Access Denied report.
4: And what, what frightens me more than anything is because there's inequity, districts across the country are eliminating programs for gifted youth. You know, it's a headache, right? If you're an administrator and you've got parents calling you and the newspaper reporters writing something about how you're inequitable in gifted education, they're like, forget it. We're not going to do this. We'll solve this problem. We'll just, and they might be expensive. They're contentious. They're high visible. They're inequitable. So we eliminate them. But that to me is super high stakes because despite fewer black and brown and lower income children and children who speak English as a second language, et cetera, being identified, those who do get identified benefit. And so, and and I, there's this myth in gifted education that if you're smart, you'll make it on your own. And what I do know is if you're, if you're well off, if you're middle income or higher, your parents are going to take care of you. So if your school eliminates the gifted program, you have the mobility and the finances and the and the ability to take your students out, your children out and put them somewhere where their where their needs and talents will be developed. But if you're working two jobs, you don't. And so every time we eliminate a gifted program across the country in a major city, we hurt the very kids we say we're helping by getting rid of the inequity because now there's no opportunity.
0: But in our research, we discovered there's another reason that proposed reforms in gifted ed are failing to catch on. This part of the story starts in 2017 in Charlotte, North Carolina, at the annual meeting of the National Association for Gifted Children. It's a scholarly association. Russell Warren, a faculty member at Utah Valley University who was doing research about Terman, met Jennifer Jolly, another scholar who had written about the history of gifted education.
6: I was just talking with Jennifer. I said, you know, the hundredth anniversary of the the beginning of the Terman longitudinal study of of children with high IQs is, is coming up. I bet we could pitch a um, a special issue for a journal. And she said, that's a great idea. Um, and we were looking forward to ha- um helping the the field grapple with um, its history. We just didn't think it would turn out the way it did.
0: They proposed a special issue of Gifted Child Quarterly, the association's flagship journal, exploring the 100th anniversary of this landmark study. And initially, the special issue was given the green light. But about a year later, when Warren and Jolly put out a call for submissions, a group
4: of scholars objected. Because, you know, number one, it it was more than 100 years ago. And number two, he's a racist eugenicist. And, um, you know, number three, it doesn't really add anything to the field. And number four, it's offensive to the people in our field who are diverse and who are working for diversity that there was, you know, a big um, kerfluffle.
0: That's Marcia Gentry, the Purdue professor that we heard earlier. She opposed the special issue on Terman. To warn, though, the objections amounted to censorship. And what he felt was an application of cancel culture to his field's history.
6: By that same logic, um, studying or talking about the history of slavery means you agree with slave owners. I mean, nothing could be further in a, from the truth. You can study evil. You can study mistakes. You can study problems of the past without agreeing in them of the uh, uh, with them. the past influences the present whether we acknowledge it or not. And if we want to control how it influences the present, we need to have an accurate understanding and a full understanding of that past as much as we can.
0: Some of those opposed to the special issue though said they weren't against scholars doing research about history and Terman. Their main objection was that the association's main journal, would devote a special issue to this man's work. To outsiders, this might seem like a minor distinction. But Anne Gray, an education assessment specialist at New Mexico Tech, makes the case against the special issue this way.
5: Um, so there's an indigenous scholar uh, in, in, in education, and uh, her name is Eve, Eve Tuck. And one of the things she talks about is this move to innocence. And that a move to innocence is that, um, you know, when we take someone like Lewis Terman and we say, well, you know, it's okay because he was, yes, he was a eugenicist, but, you know, he was, he was, that was just the time he was in. Let's, let's overlook at that, you know, let's not focus on that. Um, that was the time period he was in. Yes, he said some really offensive things, but that was the time period he was in. So let's have this move to innocence and, um, and move beyond that and just look at the good that he did and, and venerate the good that he did. And, you know, that move to innocence... Um, it negates the experiences of the people at that time and continuing to now that that legacy that's his legacy continues to marginalize continues to um invisibilize and uh and really um abuse, in a way. Uh, and and I'm, not, I'm not willing to say that this move to innocence is okay.
0: Warren, who proposed this special issue, argues that he went out of his way to make clear this wasn't some sort of lifetime achievement award for Lewis Terman.
6: No, in fact, we purposely avoided words like celebration and commemoration. In our call for proposals, we use the word mark that this marks the 100th anniversary. Um, and like I said, we, we explicitly asked for, for manuscripts that would um, interrogate. In fact, that's one of the words we use, that, we, that would interrogate his views.
0: He even says he is sympathetic to calls for racial equity and diversity. But he feels like the goals of what he sees as academic freedom need to come first.
6: And ironically, I I agree with a lot of their goals. Uh, I agree with a lot of their social goals, but uh, when the chips are down, I saw that they are not going to support free inquiry. They're not going to support open science. They are not going to support truth. They're going to support their social viewpoints. And whether I agree with those or not are irrelevant.
0: At the center of this kerfuffle... Was Jonathan Plucker, the president of the National Association for Gifted Children.
6: I'm by
7: nature, I'm someone who tries to find the middle ground. And that's always served me well. Um, very early on in this situation. I just realized that's not like no one wants to find the middle ground. I people within two or three weeks of this thing starting to blossom up as, as like a really big serious problem. People had their heels dug in.
0: The drama played out over more than two years. After initial calls to stop the issue, the board decided it could go forward, but invited scholars on both sides to write blog posts explaining their their views. Then George Floyd happened. After the police killing of Floyd last year and worldwide protests against systemic racism, this controversy flared up again forcing the association to reopen discussion on whether or not it would do a special issue on Lewis Terman. Distrust was high on both sides. And some scholars took unusual measures to make their cases. Most extreme, Russell Warren submitted Freedom of Information Act requests to obtain emails of some of his colleagues to find out what they were saying about him and the special issue.
6: And so, yeah, in uh, about March of 2019 or so, Um, I submitted a whole bunch of FOIA requests to people's employers if they worked for government entities. And so, yeah, I did. But um, only because no one was operating transparently with me except for Jennifer and a couple other – colleagues, most of whom were not getting information firsthand anyway.
0: So you're, you feel like you weren't getting the transparency around what? Like, what is it that you didn't feel like you were getting communicated that you were About
6: why why the special issue is being questioned, why NAGC, NAGC thought they could um, step in and um, usurp the editor's roles when the editors have been promised editorial independence. And, and why um, – and to understand what the motivations of these people were –
0: So here's the compromise that Plucker and the organization came up with during this increasingly ugly debate. The journal would not run a special issue devoted to Termin, but it would publish the articles that Warren and Jolly had already commissioned over the course of several regular
4: editions of the journal. They call it the terminated issue, and that's not lost on me. I think that's an interesting way to put it.
0: (laughs) Did this compromise work? No. Neither side thought it went far enough. And Warren left the association in protest, and published an article in another journal calling the whole incident academic censorship. There were two dueling narratives here. On one extreme, there was the argument that anyone talking about Terman at this moment, especially in the wake of George Floyd, must be doing so to advance racism. And on the other extreme, there was the argument that anything but a full special issue amounted to censorship, and was somehow anti-intellectual. With that framing and emotions high, nothing like a debate about the issues at hand was really happening.
7: Like I, I, I do really mourn the friends that I've lost because of all this, um, and you know the fact that I was really trying to be the guy in the middle to try to bring things together is of no solace to me whatsoever. Just because it has been so bad, I just I everyone involved with this in any way, shape, or form. Uh, has come out of this worse than they went into it. And I'm not sure the field or education more generally has learned anything from it. And that, that to me is kind of why it's
0: tragic. Okay, I know this seems like a very small debate after talking about big issues on finding genius. But Jonathan Plucker felt there's something key here that people who even agree with each other are having trouble even talking about Terman's legacy and about these broader issues of race and education. And this inability to have a productive dialogue about the history of racism is part of what has held back progress, according to Plucker. As
7: long as I've been in the field, these equity issues, solving these equity issues has been one of our top goals. We've had the conceptual frameworks to do it for, for a long time. We've had this, I mean, true, unbelievable explosion of research on strategies to get it done in the last five to 10 years, say. It's a hot topic in communities, state houses, Capitol Hill. Um, Why have we had so little impact and... I've thought many times in the middle of the night when I've woken up, I started thinking about this controversy. This is kind of why, is that people on both sides who are passionate about doing the right thing are just struggling to line up their worldviews in a way that lets us move forward together. And... um how do you solve that? Like I've I've been trying for years intently the past two years during my term as president, and I we just haven't made a lot of progress there. Plucker is still hopeful though. To me, the best means if a kid has some talents, we find a way, regardless of their zip code, parents' bank accounts, skin color, language, immigration status, what have you, sexual identity, whatever, gender, whatever regardless of those things like those things don't matter <laughs> all that matters is talent and supporting them but we do live in a world where all those things i just mentioned 100% matter and um, i'm a bit of an american exceptionalist because i believe that our ultimate goal in this country is to keep working toward the place where those things don't matter in that if you have a talent And developing that talent is going to be good for you and good for society. We're going to find a way to help you start to get there. It's still going to be up to you because we live in a capitalist system. No one's going to hand you anything. Um, But uh, if we can at least start you with the right opportunities to develop those skills, and then you can go off and make your own decisions about whether you want to be the world's best painter surgeon, police officer, landscaper, whatever, nurse, doctor. um, I I have a hard time believing that most people don't want that. And um, if that's the goal, then let's move backwards from there. What do we need to do to make sure we're providing those opportunities to someone? I would say one of the big things is uh, this has to happen in public schools because that's where the vast majority of kids are taught. And if you don't do it there, it absolutely happens in private schools. So you've 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 already made that bank account thing matter a ton, right? So it's got to be everywhere. It has to be in public schools, uh, you know. And again, just keep working backwards until we find these common denominators. Um, and and try to get people to let go some of the history here um, that I know really, really, really clouds some of these issues.
0: It turns out the ghost of Lewis Terman, with all his assumptions, still haunt our national search for genius. Next time on Bootstraps, what's with letter grades? A, B plus, F. It turns out school wasn't always like that. This has been Bootstraps, a joint production of EdSurge and Open Campus. We'll be putting out new installments every month or two, so make sure to subscribe to catch every future episode. If you like the show, please take a minute to rate, review, or share. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at jryoung. Young. Additional reporting and research for this episode was done by Scott Smallwood. Editing by Rob McGinley Myers and Scott Smallwood. Thanks also to Rebecca Koenig, Sarah Hebel, and Emily Tate. The actor who brought Lewis Terman to life for us this episode is Michael Goetz. Music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. We also sampled an old tune, To the Mockingbird, performed by the Foggy Mountain Boys, and the theme song from Revenge of the Nerds. If you like this podcast series, check out the weekly Ed Surge podcast, which you can find wherever you listen. Stay tuned for more in the Bootstrap series. Thanks for listening. See you next time.